James chapter 3. Uh, I am the master of the wrong diagnosis. doesn't matter what it is, health or automobile, I will diagnose incorrectly every time. In the past, I've had this conversation multiple times with my mechanic. I'll call him up and say, look, something's wrong with the car. I don't think it's anything too serious. It may just be the radio knobs need adjusted, something like that. We'll bring it in and let you take a look at it. And then three hours later, I get a phone call. Cody, I need you to sit down. It's going to be $80,000 to fix your car. And I say, well, it seems reasonable. All right, let's do that. Uh, I'm horrible at diagnosing things. You might be also. So I want to test your diagnostic skills real quick. I want to give you a case study, tell you about a fictitious church that has some problems. Now, these are problems that are not uncommon in church life, but still it's a fictitious church. This is not some passive-aggressive way to talk bad about who we are. Uh, but here's this hypothetical church that's facing some struggles. I want you to diagnose for me the problem with this church in our example. So here's the situation. The church is in relational turmoil. It seems like every relationship in the church is broken. People have taken up sides against each other. Some people are working actively for the demise of other people. They think it'd just be better here if this group was just gone and out of here altogether. People are acting like the enemy is the other person in the pew next to them. And all the while this fighting is going on, still from time to time there trickles in outsiders who don't know any better. They don't know what's going on in the church. And they come in as a part of their faith journey. Maybe they're already a believer. Maybe they're not. And they come and they sit in the midst of that kind of a toxic fellowship and they get caught in the blast radius. They know immediately they're not welcomed and they're not wanted. So while the church is at war with each other, relationships are being destroyed, another problem is that real ministry needs just are not being met. There's real good opportunities uh, that aren't being taken care of. So what's the problem with that church? If I were to ask you, tell me the thing that's missing from a church that acts that way towards each other and towards those on the outside, what would you diagnose? You might say love, because that's kind of our easy Sunday school answer other than Jesus to a lot of these types of questions. But I would say, and James is going to tell us today, that church lacks wisdom. Now, that's not what you would say. It's not what I would say on this kind of diagnostic test. That's precisely what James says in our passage today. You see, the mistake we make is we only connect wisdom with decision-making, right? What do I do with my career? What purchase do I make? Where do we go for the holidays? Those types of things. We, We need wisdom to make decisions. That's what we think of wisdom, but that's not biblical wisdom. I mean, sure, biblical wisdom involves the ability to discern between different choices and find the right choice that God wants for you. But biblical wisdom is much more than that. Biblical wisdom is primarily connected not to decision-making, but to obedience to the Word of God. Biblical wisdom and obedience go hand-in-hand together. So when James says that a church like the one in our example has a wisdom problem, He's saying they're not living in obedience to Jesus. Another mistake we make with wisdom is we just simply don't understand its value. 
We don't value wisdom properly. But the writer of Proverbs, chapter 3, he tells us that wisdom is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. It's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with it. So we think of wisdom wrong. We value it improperly. So it's a good thing we're here today to study James chapter 3 as he points us in the way of Jesus. As we've walked through this letter from James, we found that he's writing to a church that he loves, right? He has affection for these people that he's writing to, but it's a church that is completely messed up. Their relationships are all wrong. They don't care for the hurting as they should. They give undue attention to wealthy or powerful Christians versus impoverished Christians. Their words are uncontrolled. There's so many problems present in this church. And as we heard from Pastor Dave last week when he preached on the previous passage in chapter 3, this church has a speech problem. And when you couple that with their wisdom problem, this church is a vortex of destruction. It's hurting people in a very, very serious way, and it's hurting the reputation of the gospel. The sad reality is that Christians are capable of such great damage. When we step out of God's wisdom, the impact will be felt by every relationship in our lives. When we walk in our own way and not in accordance with the Word of God, when we walk in the way that is foolish versus the way that is wise, Not only do we pay a consequence, but the people around us do as well. So my purpose in preaching James chapter 3, starting in verse 13 this morning, is to point us towards God's wisdom, to point us to the way of Christ so that our lives would bear unmistakable evidence of belonging to Jesus. So our passage is, pr- is structured very simply. We're going to follow that structure very closely. James describes to us today two different types of wisdom. One is decidedly negative. One, of course, is decidedly positive and Christ-like. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Here's what James writes. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So every person needs wisdom. Every one of us in this room need what James is talking about today. So let's talk about these two different types of wisdom that James illustrates for us. The first type, if you're taking notes, we can simply call wicked wisdom. Wicked wisdom is described for us in verses 14, 15, and 16. James helps us understand it by answering a few different questions. In verse 14, he describes the problem. In verse 
15, he describes its origin, where it comes from. And then in verse 16, he discusses the blast radius, the damage it inflicts on the people who suffer underneath this wicked wisdom. So in verse 14, James begins by describing our problem in some very specific terms. Look at verse 14 with me in your Bible. He says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So bitter envy and selfish ambition, those terms show up twice in the passage we've read this morning. So what is bitter envy? Well, it describes a toxic jealousy. It's a twisted way of viewing people in the world. If, if I harbor bitter envy in my heart, then I devalue people and I overvalue stuff. I will want influence. I will want power. I'll want reputation. I'll want your things, but I will not want you. Uh, I will feel as if I'm entitled to them, and I'm going to work to get those things for myself. That's bitter envy. What about selfish ambition? Now, is ambition by itself bad? Well, absolutely not. It's not bad to aspire to succeed or to do well in work or in your family or in other areas of your life. But when you put the word selfish in front of it, oh, it just it begins to rip people apart. Selfish ambition is supremely wicked. It means we want to succeed to the failure of others. It devalues people and sees them only as hindrances to our success. We do whatever we can to get the win, whatever we can to get over the other person. If it comes at their expense, if it costs them in some way, so be it as long as I achieve the goal that I'm after. A person who operates according to selfish ambition would have no problem giving a seat of honor in the church to the wealthy or the powerful Christian and making the impoverished Christian sit at their feet. A person like this would hear of a need in the church. Hey, I'm I'm not properly clothed and, and I'm starving, I need food. And that type of person would say, go, be warm and well fed. It's a hollow faith. It's a faith in word only. They hear the word. They don't do the word. That's what bitter envy and selfish ambition look like. And even worse, James tells us that the people in this church, this church here in our text, they they boast about these things. He tells them specifically not to. Don't boast about this. Don't deny the truth. But they are bragging about the way they scale the social ladder, bragging about the way they get over on other people, bragging about the things they have and boasting about the people they've crushed to succeed. And these are people in the covenant family. They are worshipers among other worshipers. They boast about these wicked deeds. And they do all of this in denial of the truth. James says, don't boast about this, don't deny the truth. What's the truth they deny when they live this way? They deny the truth that these actions are anti-Christ. Not merely bad, not merely, dist- not merely distasteful, they, they, they are anti-Christ through and through. In fact, James speaks very clearly about where this type of wicked wisdom comes from. In verse 15, Look at what he says. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, 
unspiritual, of the devil. He gives us these three descriptors, this wicked wisdom. It's earthly, it's worldly, it's unspiritual, it's fleshly. It's of the devil, it's simply demonic. So saying it's earthly is a way of saying it doesn't come from heaven. In different places in this letter, James has described the good things that come down from above. But to say it's earthly is to say it's, it's a product of this world, of this broken culture that's marred by sin. To say it's unspiritual is, is a way of saying it's fleshly, right? This, this doesn't belong to God. It, just, it belongs to man. This brand of wisdom, so to speak, just comes from our collective ignorance and sinfulness. And then the third thing he says of it is it's of the devil. You know, one thing I think we've learned for sure in our study of James is that James sees our sin as far more serious than we do. It's one of the reasons we need this letter to wake us from our sinful slumber. This type of behavior that devalues people and overvalues things, this comes from the devil Isn't it interesting, James gives us here three descriptors, and each one ascends in its intensity. It's earthly, and that's bad. It's unspiritual, which is worse than earthly. It's of the devil, which is the the worst of them all. Now, we don't normally think of the devil working in these types of ways. If we were to think of Satan scheming among us, we might carry more of a Hollywood type of version of events we would expect a a heavy metal rock and roll soundtrack and lots of pentagrams if you live through the satanic panic of the 80s like i did there'd be smurfs somewhere also we can talk about that later if you want but we we have this culturized version of, of satan's plans and attacks and unseemliness james puts us on high alert. His schemes are far more insidious and sinister and easily overlooked than we could ever imagine. If he can get you to hear the word and not do it, if he can get you to not care about vulnerable people like orphans and widows, if he can get you to show favoritism to some and devalue others, If he can get you to believe that faith without works is alive. If he can get you to use your words to curse people and set lives on fire. If he can get you to detest people and love things and disobey God, then you have fallen victim to Satan's schemes. That type of wisdom, that type of disobedient life is of the devil. What's the outcome when God's people act in these devilish ways? Well, James tells us in verse 16, look at it with me. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So wicked wisdom results in disorder and every evil practice. The disorder that he speaks of here is a self-centered chaos. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians when he describes the the chaos in which that church in Corinth used their spiritual giftedness. It was self-centered. It was complete and total disorder. 
that disorder comes at a relational price. That's why Paul offers his correction to the church in Corinth. That's why James gives the correction here. If I walk into this place among my brothers and sisters, or if I am in my home living for my own selfish ambition, it's going to come at a price with the people that I care about. Disorder, selfish disorder puts me at the front and others behind. So it results in disorder. And then he says, every evil practice. Do you know what falls under the umbrella of every evil practice? Every evil practice falls under that umbrella. When we step out of line of the will and the Word of God, when we uh, claim salvation and walk in disobedience, we are prone to every kind of evil act. James gives us a warning here to wake us up, to let us see how insidious this way of living is and how destructive it is. We are destroyed. Relationships are destroyed. People suffer when we walk in the way of wicked wisdom. So wicked wisdom is is no way to live. It's no way to worship. It's no way to to call ourselves Christians. It, It belongs to an old way of life, a life that previously did not belong to Jesus. But once you step into a faith relationship with Christ, things change. And so James spends the bulk of his time not talking about this horrible, wicked wisdom, but describing godly wisdom. So the two types of wisdom, the first is wicked wisdom, the second is godly wisdom. In verses 13, 17, and 18, describe this for us. Now, I skipped over verse 13. I saved it till this part because I feel it belongs with uh, this description of godly wisdom. But in verse 13, James asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? So, all right, show of hands, just stand up and tell. If you're wise and understanding, let us know. But then the question you and I might ask is, well, how, how do I know if I'm wise and understanding? Well, he gives us a way to evaluate. Look in verse 13. Let him or her show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James is so consistent in this letter. He insists over and over that true Christian faith has outward evidence. So if I were to raise my hand and say, oh, James, me, I am wise and understanding among these people. My claim to wisdom doesn't do the trick, but my life will give evidence if I work and live in this humble, wise way. James says it's easy to see. True faith is evidenced by our works. That's what he gave us in chapter 2. Here again, true wisdom is evidenced by the kind of faith I live, the humble way I act in these good deeds. So wisdom is not claimed. Wisdom is shown. It's lived. And we don't have to guess whether or not a person is a wise person who walks in the way of Jesus. We know this by the evidence of their life. We don't have to take someone's word for it. Oh, believe me, I'm a great Christian. I'm telling you now, it's true. We don't have to take their word for it. Our lives serve as the evidence that we walk in humility with Jesus Christ. And where does that kind of wisdom come from? 
Well, he tells us in verse 17, he says, that wisdom comes from heaven. That's a lot better than earthly, unspiritual of the devil. This godly wisdom comes from heaven. And that should be no surprise to us as students of James. Already in chapter 1, verse 17, he's told us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Now, one thing that's for sure is that the world does not look at the church as a bastion of wisdom. The church is often accused of being ignorant, foolish, perpetrators of hate speech, being on the wrong side of history, and all kinds of creative, imaginative, negative things. But that's the way it's always been for God's people. You know that, right? This is not something new that just came on the scene this year. God's people have always been viewed by the world outside of them as foolish, daft, not with it, always in the wrong. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul tells us the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So we are viewed with a certain bit of darkness by the world on the outside. We, we won't find validation for this godly wisdom from people who do not know God or love God or walk with Him. This is a different kind of wisdom. Now, according to the world outside of us, we can find wisdom in so many different ways and places. But according to James, wisdom comes from one source, and that source is from God himself. And so what does that wisdom look like? What does godly wisdom that comes from above, what does that wisdom look like? Well, James gives us eight characteristics in verse 17. And each one of those characteristics is awesome. Look with me at verse 17. The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure. To say this wisdom is pure is to say it doesn't lead to sin. Rather, it leads away from sin. To say it's pure is to say it's a type of wisdom that's set apart for God's people. To say it's pure is to say something of its origin. It comes from God. It's not stained by human sin and decay. It's a gift from heaven above. So James tells us this wisdom is pure, and that word pure acts as an umbrella term for all the other characteristics that follow. And with the characteristics that follow after pure in verse 17, James splits them into three different groups. There's one grouping of three, a grouping of two, and another grouping of two. It'll make sense in just a minute. So the first grouping of this pure wisdom characteristics is that it is peace-loving, considerate and submissive. So peace-loving, that's a power-packed word. This wisdom from God is peace-loving. The evidence of my life will show that I'm a peace-loving person. That word's powerful, especially when contrasted with bitter envy and selfish ambition. Peace in biblical thinking, though, is a lot more robust than the way you and I think about it. For us, peace is merely the absence of conflict. But in the Old Testament, peace is something much bigger. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's the investment in another person so that they can flourish. So to walk into the church and say, I'm at peace with all people here, that may be true in the sense that you're not in active conflict, warfare with someone else. But biblical peace has an action requirement to it. To say, I'm at peace with people here is to say, I'm acting on their behalf. 
I'm reaching out to them. I'm caring for them. I'm making sure they have what they need to flourish. I'm investing in the lives of others. And it can be hard to be that kind of peace-loving person. Again, peace-loving is not just loving the absence of conflict. Peace-loving is loving the brothers and sisters of the faith family, caring for one another actively in word and in deed. That kind of peace-loving can be difficult in any church, and especially in a church like ours, where this side of the room won't know who's sitting on this side of the room today, and vice versa. And, and where it, it, it just, it's easy for us to get in our lanes, park, drop off the kid, get the coffee, drink the coffee fast, then come into church. Come into church late because I kept drinking the coffee, but I drank the coffee, and I got into church and sing the songs and pray the prayer and sit through the sermon and get the kid and go, whatever. We just get in our lane. We go through our routines, and we can do so with blinders to the people around us. That's not peace-loving. Peace-loving is feeling like we're stepping into our living room here. These are my guests I need to know names. I want to know stories. I want to eat food with these people. And I want to make sure they can afford food. And they've got clothes. And they've got what they need. They've got someone to laugh with, support them, play a game with. Whatever the thing, eat Thanksgiving dinner with. Whatever it is. I want to make sure my people are taken care of. That's peace loving. Getting outside of our blinders and investing in the lives of each other. This kind of wisdom, godly wisdom, is peace-loving. It is considerate, right? So there's going to be a willingness to yield to others. And it's submissive. Submission is a willing deference to others. When you put consideration and submission together, it reminds me of Paul's words to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he tells them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. At times in church life, when we have disagreements on any various number of things, it's going to be important for us to plant our roots right here in godly wisdom, that we would be peace-loving, that we would be considerate and submissive to one another. The second grouping of characteristics, just two characteristics there in the middle of verse 17. He says, this kind of wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. A simple way of thinking about mercy is this. Mercy is when you do not get the bad thing you deserve. It can oftentimes be contrasted with grace. Grace is getting the good thing you don't deserve. That's salvation, right? Well, mercy is not getting the bad thing you do deserve. As a sinful human being, the bad thing we deserve is God's judgment on our sin. He shows us mercy in that He removes that judgment from us and puts it on Christ on the cross. So if we're, we're the kinds of people who walk in godly wisdom, we're going to be full of mercy to others. That's seen in action. That's not just a mindset. That's releasing the person who owes us from the debt they, they can't repay with an apology or otherwise. Mercy is releasing people who have hurt us, who deserve retribution, releasing them from that type of pain or punishment on our part. 
Jesus is very concerned that his people be people of mercy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is very concerned about this, and so is James. Godly wisdom is full of mercy, and it's full of good fruit. You know, Jesus said you can know his disciples by the fruit they bear. Conversely, you can know a false prophet or a wicked person by the bad fruit they bear. Good fruit is all about living a wise life. It it evidences itself in our speech, our demeanor, our actions, our care for others. The final grouping of characteristics there at the end of verse 17 are the words impartial and sincere. Godly wisdom is impartial and sincere. James has already told us in chapter 2 how Christianity is incompatible with with partiality. Remember the example he gave and the words he challenges us with in chapter 2 about not giving uh, uh, overvalue to Christians who are wealthy or powerful in the church family at the expense of others. He says we elevate everyone to their high value in Jesus Christ and treat them accordingly. So godly wisdom is impartial. It's also sincere. We're not hypocrites. Who we are on the inside is who we are on the outside. We can't claim wisdom. We can't claim faith and then live a life of bad fruit and wickedness. We're sincere through and through people of true faith. Now here's what strikes me about all of these descriptors of this wise person. The first word, purity, stands on its own. But then every other characteristic is evidenced in relationships with other people. Every single one. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The good life lived in humility is evidenced in our active relationships with other people. It's not merely kind words, good intentions, having more good than bad. It is valuing people above all and walking in the way of Jesus with them. What's the result when we live this way? When we take this good gift from above, we apply it to our lives, we walk in the way of the wisdom of God. Well, verse 18, James tells us, here's the payoff. Peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. In other words, we produce good fruit. I think that good fruit, that righteousness, it it works in two ways. First of all, it's, it's good fruit or righteousness for our own lives. This is the faith we live, the faith we claim, and and, and is seen in the way we speak and act. But then second, it promotes righteousness in the lives of others. If I'm a peace-loving Christian, then I'm going to work for the holiness of the people around me as well. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What a beautiful word picture to show the good fruit that comes from walking with Jesus. Now, here's the hard question. What do we do if we find that we fall short in the area of godly wisdom? We're not without instruction. James isn't just going to take us to the woodshed and then leave us there to hurt. He's going to tell us where the fix is. So if wisdom is defined as obedience to God in every area of life, and if wisdom is a good gift that comes from above, and if every good and perfect gift comes from God, then we should turn to God. 
we lack wisdom, we've got to go to God. And isn't that what James has already told us? He set us up for chapter 3 way back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, just flip the page and look at it with me. Look at what James says there. Excuse me, not verse 8. I lied to you. Verse 5, that works better. Chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Chapter 1, James was setting us up for this moment here so that we would know. When we get diagnosed as lacking in wisdom, we've got an answer already. God is so generous. He will give to everyone who comes to him the wisdom that they seek from him. Now, a mistake that we might make is thinking that we need to walk in obedience. We need this wisdom to walk in obedience in order to appease God, in order to make sure that we're saved from our sin. And so we might pray a feverish prayer, God, let me be a wise person who walks in obedience uh, so that uh, you'll do good to me at the end of my life. But that's the wrong way for us to think about this type of wisdom and this request for wisdom. You see, no one is saved through their obedience to God because no one can be obedient enough to earn that salvation. The moment you've begun to consider that question is already a moment too late. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. We are sinners not just because of what we do, but because of who we are. And so we step onto terra firma with this sin problem and a need for salvation. And so God saves you as an act of His grace, not as an act of your merit, not because you have walked in wisdom perfectly or better than someone else, because that's not true. We've messed this whole thing up. Salvation doesn't depend on our obedience, but on God's love and God's goodness, God's grace and God's mercy. That's where salvation is found. God doesn't save you because you've earned it. He saves you precisely because you have not earned it. You can't save yourself. That's what makes Him the Savior and not me. If if my good works, if my good deeds are going to earn me salvation, then I'm my own Savior, not Jesus. I don't need a cross. I just need a list of rules. So when we come to God to ask for wisdom, our first step is to turn to Jesus in faith, to trust Him for our salvation. On the cross, He died and suffered the penalty that your sin deserves and requires. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And that tells us there's something different about this one in his claims. The things that he said are true. If he's alive, what he said is true. If he rose from the dead, then salvation is only through him. And it's God's good grace that lets you hear this message and to hear his call to you, to be reminded of how much you are loved, how precious you are, and he knows every mistake, every way you've walked in wicked wisdom. He knows it and still Still, he's made a way for you to be saved if you would call on Christ today. So the Christian is motivated to obey, not so they can be saved, but because they are already saved by such a gracious, loving God. A prayer for wisdom might sound like this. God, 
You saved me. You've given me new life. You've removed the punishment I deserve. You dwell in me now. So God, I want to follow you in every area of my life. So James has told us today that worldly wisdom, it's a destroyer. It's an insidious scheme of the enemy. Its origins are hellish. Its practice is satanic. Wicked wisdom has no place in the life of the one who walks with Jesus. But godly wisdom, that's where people flourish. That's where we walk in the way of Jesus, in obedience to his word. And that's where relationships are right and fulfilled and lives are changed. And in James' words today, we hear echoes of Jesus. To be fair, every place we read James, we hear echoes of Jesus. Especially in this passage, it keeps taking me to Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus says this to a crowd of people. His disciples are in the crowd and, and then just a bunch of people who are interested in what he has to say are there also. Jesus says in Matthew 7, there's two different types of people. There's a wise person and a foolish person. The foolish person is the one who hears the words of Jesus and disobeys them. They're like a person who builds their house on a sandy foundation on the banks of a raging river. But the wise person, that's the person who hears the words of Jesus and and obeys them. That person's like someone who builds a house on a rock. And so then when the storms come, The foolish builder, the one who hasn't walked in the ways of Jesus, that one suffers destruction. But the one who has obeyed, whose house is built on the rock, weathers that storm and flourishes. So Jesus shows us the way forward. He calls us to a life of wisdom, a life like his, a life lived sacrificially for the sake of others, a life that cares about the hurting and broken, a life that is careful with our words, a life that is not okay to see people hurting and without, a life that is serious about this time together being all it can be to build relationships, a life that's serious about building relationships outside of this room with each other. Where foolishness is present, James is clear, there's destruction. But where wisdom reigns, so does life. And this community needs this kind of church. And the community you live live in needs a you kind of Christian walking in the way of Jesus. So may we be those kinds of people whose wisdom is evidenced by the good, humble, Christ-like lives that we lead. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for a salvation that is by grace. Thank you for a salvation that is not earned. If if we were given what we earned, I'm I'm grateful there's another way that you've made through Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your message of new life and hope would land on the heart that's seeking. Father, for the person who's called themselves religious, and yet has been resting on their own merit for their salvation. Lord, I I pray that you would convince them of the error of their ways and win them by your love and your grace to them in Jesus Christ. And for my brothers and sisters in here who need wisdom, God, we come asking today and believing your word that you will give abundantly. 
you will help us to walk in the way of obedience, to walk in the way of the words of Jesus. And so, Lord, let us be these kinds of people who in our relationships, in our words, in our actions, there's unmistakable evidence of the one to whom we belong. So, Father, show us the way forward. Help us even now in this moment to say yes to you, to repent from sin, to turn in obedience to you so that our churches, our homes, our workplaces, every environment we find ourselves in would be marked by the kinds of Christians who practice good deeds in the humility of wisdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.